Please be seated. Good morning, St. Michael's. It is a delight for me and for Stephanie, who's two-thirds of the way up on the right here, uh, for us to be with you this morning. It's a delight to be worshiping. Uh, it's always a delight to be worshiping inside with humans nowadays. That's always great. Uh, it's a delight to be here. And uh, before I proceed, I want to just say thank you to all of you collectively and individually for your flexibility and perseverance and faithfulness in what has been the weirdest year and a half of modern church historical memory. I'm uh, grateful to uh, Father Chris for his leadership and your team. Uh, we, are, we are getting through it all faithfully, and, uh, and I think all of us are learning anew uh, what the Lord has to teach us about, about being church. Before I proceed, I have a couple of special thank yous. As soon as Father Grosso got here, we started borrowing him. So that's, uh, and that was a good idea on our part. Uh, so he's helping with uh, ordinance and our service for the convention. Uh, so you all are helping us in a, in a myriad of ways. I want to thank uh, Deacon Jennifer Smith, who's here today. She's a deacon and a doctor and has been helpful for more than a year. We did a year of confirming outside, which was fun and always an adventure. And she helped make that possible. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus refuses to behave. Again and again in history, his followers have tried to fit him into their own reasonable plot line narrative by which they strove to lead their lives. And again and again, Jesus gave his guards the slip. The great example of this was the 19th century when he was enlisted as a representative of cultural progress in the West, in contrast to the developing world, which was being brought along. Then came the disaster of the First World War, in which the so-called developed nations sent their mostly Christian men, young men, to slaughter one another across the trenches for no discernible reason. And there ensued a decade, the Roaring Twenties, of nihilism and decadence and confusion and religious rediscovery. Maybe Jesus was stranger than they thought. Maybe his message could not be easily assimilated into our assumptions. And at the heart of this rediscovery then, always, now, at the heart of the rediscovery was the end of the world. For it was part of the Bible that was awkward, perhaps popular for kooks, quickly overlooked. In the wake of the trauma, however, when the old assumptions were no longer workable, readers of the New Testament could see that it was plainly true that Jesus believed in and acted on the assumption of the end of the world and the coming kingdom of God. These could no longer be airbrushed away. Now, two of the key parts of the New Testament having to do with the end of the world were read in our service this morning. In the last chapter of the book of Daniel, written several centuries before Jesus, after fierce opposition, deliverance finally comes for the people of God. And then in the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Mark, Jesus himself is preparing his disciples 
for the travail to come in the days before the travail of his death. The things foretold in Daniel are now coming upon the earth, says Jesus. Both passages share some assumptions. The world is spinning out of control. Evil actors seem to have lead parts. Not hard to buy those ones. But in fact, God has the world in hand. We must be patient. Disaster is, is a battle of good and evil on a cosmic scale. And while for a time evil increases, God wins the victory in the end. Then we will see what the, um, then we understand things that we thought were meaningless suffering to actually be what Jesus calls the birth pangs of the new world. But in supposedly normal times, we suppress this knowledge. Maybe because these times have not been normal, we can retrieve it. And Jesus brings what he has to say to the fore of our mind. Today's readings have to do with the end of the world, a belief which is actually at the heart of Christianity. And so we must hear its news as pertinent to us, as news of the end of our world. The heart of the news of the end of the world is this. You and I will surely die, in fact, not once, but three times. Or a Christian understanding of death says three things to us, and all of them have to do with death. To understand the first thing it says, I want you to think with me about Sir Edmund Hillary, first man to reach the peak of Mount Everest with his Sherpa Tenzing Norgay. What was the end of Edmund Hillary's life? Depends on what you mean by an end. If it means where your life was headed, the end of the road, the top of the climb, then Hillary came to his end in 1953, I don't know how many feet above sea level in Nepal, in the thin air of Everest, though he would live on bodily for half a century. The New Testament at his heart is telling us that the end, which includes the goal, the purpose, the last chapter, death and all that is beyond, happened in Jesus of Nazareth, his death and resurrection. That is a weird claim that the end of all things happened in the middle of the story. In other words, both the passage of Daniel 12 and Jesus' own words in Mark 13 describe his own struggle with the forces of evil, his death, and his restoration to eternal life by the Spirit. Daniel thought it would come immediately and pertain to the whole world, but it occurred first to Jesus and someday to the world as a whole as well. His death was not defeat as it seemed by the forces rebelling in the world, but his own, in his own body, dying and being raised occurred the birth pangs of the new world. And we believe that this Holy Spirit has invited us into his risen life. We have by faith been given a share of that. And that means that his end, purpose, death, new beginning, birth pang is also happening in us. The New Testament 
takes this claim literally, and so should we. That is what it means to move past the avoidance of Jesus and his end of the world claim. Gospel as good news includes the news about the end of the world. And as such, it has three things to say to you and me personally. Three news of our end. And the first one has to do, first of all, with Jesus. The passages, Daniel and Mark, are first about Jesus, and then as a result about you and me. The world will indeed end for each of us. The stars in the most personal way will fall from the sky. The last enemy, as Paul says, will prevail in that moment. The temple of my body will be thrown down, no stone left on another. Gospel includes memento mori. Your death and mine should lend seriousness and urgency to our listening, avoidance a doomed strategy. But the word gospel means good news, and in this case, no stone of mine left on stone is heard after we have heard also that when you and I pass into oblivion, the one already dead, and behold, he lives, Jesus, already at my side, reaches out his hand to me. Which leaves your and my third death. What could that be? Be it by ice or fire, a bang or a whimper, an end will come upon the world and all its people, as both Daniel and Mark say, and so does science for that matter. But here the Bible has more to say. That destruction is not just a terrible solar flare, nor just utter cold, but the action of the Lord God himself. And we are part of the race that comes then to an end. The story of humanity is also our story, the story of the world, a story of which we are a part. And that end, we are told in today's word of God, is also a beginning as well. The birth pang of the new world. All raised, said Daniel, to stand before the Lord in glory or condemnation. Then what is now seen by you and me only darkly in a glass will be seen face to face. Adam dies, that means all of us, his final death, of whom we are children. And the new Adam into which you and I have been invited springs to life. In other words, there really will be an end of all things, and the whole world really is a creature just as you and I are. And these prophecies of doom and resurrection will come to pass on the widest imaginable tableau. What does the news of your and my three deaths contribute? The one shared by Jesus means gratitude in the midst of whatever travail you and I now are working through. That most personal and individual death awakens us to spiritual urgency and listening. These words pertain to us and in an ultimate way. And as we awaken, the third death summons us to hear what the Bible has to say seriously for the world, mortal as it is as well. All three will in the end prove doorways 
to the same place where Jesus is, whom C.S. Lewis says is good but not safe, whom Revelation says is the same, Hebrew says the same forever, Revelation says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever. And I, Jesus, hold the keys of death and hell. Amen.